Jonathan couldn't have chosen a uh, better song to enter our time in God's word this, this morning. Jesus is worthy. Good morning, Cornerstone Bible Church. It is a great blessing to open God's word with you to know that you're on the other side of this camera with, by God's grace, a heart that is ready to hear from him speak to us from his word. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Colossians 1. We're going to start at verse 3. This is Paul's letter to uh, the, the, the church in, in Colossae. Colossians 1, I'll start reading from verse 3 and go up to verse 14. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth. Verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit, Here's a verse we'll be focusing on this morning. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word that you've given to us. And thank you, uh, Lord, that you show that we have a ministry in one another's lives so that we all would live worthy of your son. And he is worthy of power and glory and honor and dominion. We know that he is going to be exalted one day on this earth. And we pray, Lord, uh, that you would help us be good prayers people who pray for one another so that your son, Jesus Christ, will be glorified, so that he will be exalted in his worthiness. Thank you, Father. We pray that you'd give us wisdom now as we learn from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I read an interesting article this week from, uh, it was posted, uh, a, a link to by Tim Challies, a blogger, but it came from a website called Biblical Preaching. And uh, the author of this article uh, described um, not having regrets when shelter in place ends. Describes how him and his friend were discussing how people would feel after this the, the lockdown period ends. Some people, no doubt, will be grieving as they have lost loved ones. Some people, they speculated, are going to miss the simplicity of lockdown, a life with more time with their kids and fewer meetings. Others, they recognize, are going to be saddened by missed, uh, 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 by missed opportunities. And they mention what several of those missed opportunities could be. One missed opportunity is not dealing with some of these uh, fears we have that have been, been, been unearthed during this crisis, whether financial fears or, or health 
concerns, those fears that we've become more aware of. It's a great time to be dealing with those. Another missed opportunity would be to come through the other end of this being a, a taker rather than a giver, being someone who's consumed hours and hours of Netflix rather than looking outward. Another missed opportunity is be not dealing with some of the exposed idols we've seen during this time. You know, those, those things in our hearts that you have found yourself craving and not just in the normal way, like I miss doing that or I'm missing the body, but you're dissatisfied because you're not giving, you're not, you're not uh, getting the things that you want. We might also, I think that this would be probably at most of our list, um, miss an opportunity to cultivate more time in God's word and more time praying. Probably not all of us, but many of us have more time than we used to, just even with a number of things in our lives that have been canceled. So what are we going to do with that time? What are we going to do in this lockdown stage, in this sheltering at home stage? No one knows how many weeks we have left. How can you leave this time with your lives strengthened? One way is through cultivating praying for one another. This morning, we're going to examine from Paul's prayer for the saints, how we can learn to pray for one another. We're going to look at how Paul prayed for the saints so we can learn uh, to pray for one another. Paul wrote Colossians to the city of, of, uh, of Colossae, excuse me. It was a city in the province of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, the same uh, part of the same area that Peter wrote his letters to. It was a city 125 miles east of Ephesus. Once, Colossae had been at the center of two highways. It, it, was, it was a crossroads. Now, when Paul's writing, it was a less important city than it used to be. Colossae's best days were past. It was a church founded by, by Epaphras. We don't know much about Epaphras. Possibly he'd been one of those who had been saved during Paul's two-year ministry in the, in, in the city of Ephesus. During Paul's time in Ephesus, it says in Acts 19 verse 10, that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And that wasn't because Paul was able to go to all of Asia, but because the word of the Lord had spread as people got saved in Ephesus and then brought the word to other surrounding cities. And, and perhaps one of those cities was, was the city of Colossae. Epaphras likely came to visit Paul while Paul was imprisoned in Rome. And Epaphras made that long journey because the city of Colossae was struggling with false teachers. At this time, it's probably around 60 or 61-1 AD. It's a few years before Colossae had, it was devastated and destroyed by an earthquake. So it's interesting to think about Paul writing a letter to a city that was going to go through a major destruction a few years later. We do see in the beginning of this letter, Paul's prayer for the, uh, for the, uh, the uh, churches. Excuse me. The church was in danger from false teachers. And so Paul and Epaphras prayed for this young church. 
This morning, we're going to examine three aspects of Paul's intercessory prayer so that we'll cultivate a pattern of intercessory prayer that will continue after lockdown ends. We don't want to waste this time in sheltering in place. We want to be cultivating new habits. And so this morning, we're going to examine three aspects of Paul's intercessory prayer, his prayer for others, so that we'll cultivate a pattern that will continue after lockdown. So let's first look at that first aspect, the heart behind Paul's intercessory prayer. Paul begins in Colossians 1 verse 9, for this reason also, and for this reason also, we have to look back, and we probably could look back to all of verses 3 through 8, and that's what we're going to do now to capture what Paul's heart was that launched him into this intercessory prayer of verses 9 to 14. And really, Paul's the heart of Paul's prayer begins in verse 3. And we see that Paul's prayer flows from a thankful heart. And that's the heart behind intercessory prayer. It's a thankful heart. It's a thankful heart. He says, for this reason also, and it looks back to verse 3. We look in verse 3, and he says, we give thanks to God in verse 3. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Paul's prayer for them began with a thankful heart. You may not always begin your prayers for God's people, with thankfulness. Sometimes you maybe begin your prayer with a burdened heart, with a worried heart, with a desperate heart, with an impatient heart, or maybe with a tired heart. Perhaps your prayers are are very driven by what you want God to see, what you want to see God do in someone's life, rather than just a thankfulness for what God has done in their lives. To begin praying with thankfulness requires you celebrating God's grace in the lives of others. Really, when you say thank you for them, God, you realize your prayer is not about you. It's about what God has done and about what God is doing. But to be thankful, though, Your heart also needs to be hopeful. You need to have the ability to recognize what God is doing in the saints' lives. So the heart behind Paul's prayer is a thankful heart, but it's also a hopeful heart. It's an optimistic heart rather than a pessimistic heart. See, prayer comes out of a heart that has the ability to see what God has done and what God is doing. And that just overflows Paul's prayer. It's kind of like when you have an ongoing construction project. You you realize that project has started. And every time you go and look at it, you you, you see that, that work is being done. And even if it seems like you're at a standstill, you can see that this is a work in project. If you only look at that project and say, oh, this is never going to get done. Well, it's going to fill you with the with despair. With people, you're not going to want to pray for them but you need hope when you pray. And we see Paul's hope. We see in verse three, how he says, we give thanks to God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard in verse four of your faith in Christ Jesus. That's that's our ongoing faith in their lives in Christ Jesus. They're, they're, they're in, in their Christian walks that they are exhibiting faithfulness. They're ongoing, they're continuing. He describes in verse 4 the love which you have for all the saints. He he knew that they were people who loved one another. He knew that that faith and that love came from, in verse 5, because of the hope laid up 
for you in heaven. That that faith and love came because they had hope. We've been learning about some of that hope in Romans 5. That hope of being transformed when Christ returns. That, that hope of glory. He continues, the hope laid up for you of heaven, which you have previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world, it also it is constantly bearing fruit and, and is increasing. See, Paul understood that, that the Colossians were part of something big, that, that they were one part of God's universal work of changing lives and that God had been doing that in them that and he wanted to encourage them but this is also fueling his prayers for them he said in verse 6 since the day you heard of it and understood the God, the grace of God and truth their lives had evidence that they got the gospel that they really understood it that they had been transformed by it what a sweet way of referring to the good news, the grace of God in truth. And that is what we share every time we share the gospel, the grace of God in truth. He just says in verse eight, Paul says of them, that how Epaphras informed us of your love in the spirit. See, all of this fueled Paul's prayer for this church. And we're going to see that he hadn't even met yet. He's just hearing about them, but he's thankful and he's hopeful because he hears testimony of what God's doing in their lives. And that's launching him to pray for them. What are you recognizing that God is doing in the lives of his people? Are you looking for what you have to be optimistic about? Or, or are you only despairing of what God hasn't done yet? Do you feel privileged to be part of the audience of what God is doing on the stage of people's lives. We should be sitting there in a sense with popcorn, just kind of eating, waiting, watching for what God is going to do next and not just watching, praying. And we need to have that hope-filled heart. So intercessory prayer comes from a, a heart that is thankful, a heart that is hopeful, and also a heart that is, that is convinced. And we see in verse 9, it says, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, since Epaphras first told us of what God's doing, we, me and Timothy and probably the other saints there, have not ceased. They, they didn't stop praying. So why had they gone in the prayers again and again? I, I can't say that Paul prayed for that church every day, but as an ongoing pattern, maybe multiple times a day, why did he keep praying? Well, he had a heart that is convinced that God answers prayer. See, such prayer comes from a heart that is confident that God responds to our requests. And that God uses our prayers to accomplish his will on this earth. That, that is how God is extending his kingdom. And that is how God is transforming his people. It is through our prayers, through our prayers in our homes, even when we are not even seeing the saints face to face. That is how God is accomplishing change for his glory. See, Paul knew that God is a good God who gives good gifts to those who ask. Maybe he had uh, heard from Peter, one of the other apostles, Jesus' teaching in Luke 9 about how even earthly fathers, when their son asks for a fish, doesn't give a snake, or when son asks for an egg, doesn't give a scorpion. Luke 11, verse 13. I'm sorry, it's Luke 11, verse 13. 
Jesus said, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? God the Father gives good gifts, and the ultimate good gift is the Spirit, the one who transforms our lives. See, we need to have a heart that is convinced that God gives good gifts, that God is working in his people. A heart that is convinced that God uses prayers to advance his kingdom and to transform his people. Intercessory prayer comes from a heart that is thankful, from a heart that is hopeful, from a heart that is convinced, but also from a heart that is concerned, a heart that is concerned. Intercessory prayer from a heart comes from a heart that is concerned for others, a heart that remembers others. Paul says in verse 9, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask. See, remember, Paul was imprisoned while writing this letter. He was under Shelter at home orders too. Well, he was chained at home. Staying at home meant time staying in prayer, not more time Netflixing. They didn't have Netflix. It meant more time praying. Paul's love for those, love for those he hadn't even met was intermingled with prayers for them. Love and prayer are intertwined. If you love someone, you'll pray for them. And if you'll pray for them, you'll love them. And if you don't love someone, if you're really struggling with someone, I challenge you, pray for them with thankfulness and hopefulness and with this convinced knowing that God works through our prayers and with a concern for them. Look how Paul, uh, uh, look at Paul's love for the Colossians in Colossians 2, verse 1. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face. Paul was struggling. That shows his concern for them, struggling in prayer, but probably struggling in his overall ministry too, writing letters, but struggling in prayer for them. This was the same testimony that Epaphras had. We see that in Colossians 4, verses 12 through 13. This is, the, this is their church planter, Epaphras. Epaphras, Paul writes, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you. Paul could, 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 could testify. He was a witness to the concern that Epaphras had for the saints in Colossae. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and, and, and Hierapolis, the other major cities near, near Colossae. Paul had a concerned heart for them. Timothy had a concerned heart for them. Epaphras had a concerned heart for them. And that is what intercessory prayer takes. There has to be a heart behind it, a thankful heart, a hopeful heart, a convinced heart, and a concerned heart. So pray that way for one another. If you want to cultivate this pattern of intercessory prayer, cultivate that kind of heart. Start by thanking God for those you would pray for. Start by being hopeful and recognizing what God has done and, and remembering that they are part of this great big plan that they heard the gospel and they believed it, just like the gospels bearing fruit across the world. This is how we should pray for our missionaries convinced that God is going to answer our prayers for them and concern for them. 
So we need to have a heart behind our intercessory prayer, but also we need to have a focus. Our, our intercessory prayers need to be focused. And so let's now look at the focus of Paul's intercess, intercessory prayer in verse 9. As the verse continues, Paul prayed and asked God that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. To be filled, this word means to be overwhelmed or to be saturated. A great illustration of what this word means is in John 12, verse 3. And there it describes Mary, uh, uh, how, how she anointed Jesus' feet. Listen to John 12, verse 3. This is just an illustration of the word filled. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the of the perfume. The house was overwhelmed with the smell. It was it was saturated with the smell. 2 Timothy 1:4 also uses the word filled. How Paul was longing to see Timothy even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy. Paul didn't just didn't want a little joy. He wanted to be dominated by joy at seeing Timothy again. To be filled is to be influenced by, to be even controlled by. And Paul prayed that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Sometimes we use the word filled for someone who is filled with rage, filled with anger, filled with hate. It's a dramatic word to be dominated by those emotions. The, uh, Luke in Acts 5.3 uses the uh, word uh, describing the scene be, be, between Peter and, and Ananias after Ananias uh, had, had said, I sold land and here's all the money for it. And Peter said to Ananias in Acts 5.3, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? Why has Satan filled your heart? I see Satan dominating what you're doing here, Ananias. What a contrast to Ephesians 5, 18, where the apostle Paul writes, do not get drunk with wine for that is dissipation, but be filled with the spirit, be dominated by the spirit. And we know that we are dominated by the spirit through knowledge, filled with the knowledge. Now, if you are reading along in the New American Standard Bible, uh, there's a little note there that's, that this, that's trying to make a distinction for this word knowledge. It's real knowledge or, or, or it's true knowledge. It's the Greek word knowledge with an emphatic pro, 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 pronoun before it. It's knowledge that leaves one different. And we've saw this uh, word knowledge a couple times in 2 Peter 1. It's knowledge that's a converting knowledge, knowledge that's a, a, a transforming knowledge. We've already read it today in Colossians 1.6, how those at Colossae, it's since the day you heard of the gospel and understood the grace of God and truth. They had understood it, and that's that verb form. They'd been changed by this knowledge. To be filled with knowledge is to be impacted to the extent that your decisions are influenced by that knowledge. It's to be filled with knowledge means to be impacted to the extent that your decisions are influenced by that knowledge. One way that we've been filled with knowledge, and this is just an, an illustration, it's when we make, me and my family, the extra long drive to Costa Mesa for our favorite deep dish pizza. Now, the first time we went, it was because we had read, we, 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 we had read a, a review online. We didn't have this kind of knowledge yet. 
We had just read something and we went to experience it. But the second time we knew this deep dish pizza, we were filled with knowledge. We were impacted by that knowledge. See, this review knowledge became a make us take the drive to Costa Mesa knowledge. We were filled with that knowledge. Now, that's just an example, being filled with the knowledge of a pizza. What Paul talks about is being filled with the knowledge of God's will. What is God's will? One way to think of God's will, it is God's divine perspective on this earth that he's revealed in his word. It's God's divine perspective on this earth, really the universe, that he's revealed in his word. It's both the righteous plan that God, that God executes. And it's also the righteous commands he requires us to follow. It's what God reveals he's doing in the world, his plan, but also what he reveals for us to do with our lives. God's will is the greatest story ever told, and it's also the daily instructions he gives us. It's the epic of redemption. It's also the manual for humanity. One question we could have when we come to God's will is, is oh, sorry, and I lost my place. I turned the wrong page. Uh, it is the plan for the universe and also the plan for your life. And that's one way to think about God's will. It's the plan for the universe, but also the plan for your life. And Jesus exemplified being filled with a knowledge of God's will. Jesus was someone who got God's will. In John 4, verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus got God's will. It was day-to-day -day obedience, but it was also his part in the great plan of redemption. In John, verse, uh, John 6, verse 38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, not just to follow my desires, but the will of him who sent me. This is why I'm here, is to please him, to obey him. Well, what does that mean for us as creatures? God's will includes our place in redemption history. It's, it, it, it is our place in God's big plan for us that was for sinners to respond to the gospel with repentance so that we could be transformed and become his children. But it's also our place in the body of Christ. That is God's will. It is to use the gifts that he's given us. It's our mission in a world that still needs to hear God's truth so that they can be saved. That's part of God's will. But it's also our God's expectations for our relationships with one another, our relationships inside our family, our, 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 our attitudes towards our jobs, the stewardship of our time, the stewardship of our money. All of these things are included in God's will for us. The, 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 the biggest picture and the part we play in that to, to, to the very small decisions of what we look at on the internet. In Psalm 40, verse 8, the psalmist says, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. And even as I say that, I delight to do your will, O God, we see how desperately we need a Savior. See, we don't naturally to delight to do God's will. And whether that's our, our part in the big picture or our part in the everyday obedience, 
naturally without God's grace working in our lives. We find the fact that God has a will for us, that God has a big plan, that God has commands as a burden, as a a, a killjoy. We, we, we look at God's will as a taskmaster, as, as, as burdensome. It doesn't bring us joy to have to see his will. That's why Jesus Christ came. See, Jesus Christ came to fulfill God's will perfectly, to obey his laws. And then because of his submission to God's big plan of salvation, to take our punishment, that's what happened when he died on the cross. He took the punishment for our sins, for our unwillingness to obey his will. And then because of his resurrection, because of his new life, he can give new life to us, to transform us, to those who delight to do his will. And so that's the question for you this morning, or one among many questions. Do you delight to do his will? Can you say with the psalmist in Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, oh my God, your law is within my heart. Or are you still on the other side of God's law? Are you still resenting his rule? In Matthew 11, verses 28 through, 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 through 30, Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, all who find God's will to be a toilsome burden, and I will give you rest. If you come to him realizing that that this doesn't bring me joy, that I'm broken on the inside, that, that I can't obey his law, and part of me doesn't even want to obey his law. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. And that rest doesn't mean you don't need to worry about not a, about obeying. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. I will teach you how to love obedience, Jesus says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that is the good work that God does by sending his son, Jesus Christ. He makes us into people who love his will. Maybe you're out there this morning and you're like, I don't love his will, but, but, but I feel bad about that. I'm ready to repent. I'm ready to repent of resenting his will. I'm ready to submit to his will, but I need a savior. Jesus Christ is the savior that you need. He is willing to take the punishment that you deserve. And that's what happened on that cross. Turn to him and be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Call to him and you will be saved. You'll be rescued from the eternal punishment of not obeying his will. He will transform you from a will resenter to a God's will lover, to someone who loves God's will. The new heart that God gives us in Psalm 143 verse 10 says, teach me to do your will for you are my God. It gives you an eagerness, an expectation. Lord, I want to know your will. And this is what Paul no doubt prayed for himself. And this is what he was praying for the Colossians, that they would know God's will. See, God's will is revealed to us in his word. God's will is revealed to us in his word. If you want to know God's will, then understand his word. God doesn't leave us trying to guess his will. We don't have to feel his will. We don't have to get out a, a Ouija board. Of course, we're not going to do that. But to try to kind of, oh, where's God leading me? It's not a divining rod to get his will. And of course, you can even see in the examples I use, it gets very cultic. Ouija boards and divining rods, because you're, you're trying to get this unknown, mysterious thing. No, we must be satisfied with God's will revealed in God's word. 
Jesus didn't flip a drachma to see if God wanted him to eat bread or, 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 or fish that day. What is God's will for me? See, God's will for us is clear in God's word. Are you dominated by what God says in his word? Or are you incapacitated by what God doesn't say? We can spend so much time worrying about what God hasn't made clear instead of devoting ourselves to what he has made clear. God's will for Adam and Eve was to cultivate the garden. He gave them jobs to do, but he didn't tell them where to grow tulips or what kind of fruit to grow. He gave them freedom. Are you more concerned about what God has made known or what he's hidden? God wants you to please him. He's not playing games with you. He's revealed his will for you in his word to you. Now, just to be clear, this being filled with God's word isn't the kind of experience you have before taking a test. Now, some of you can think back to, to your school days. Some of you are still in school, even now. Um, in, in the school days, you try to cram as much knowledge as possible into your head. You were dominated with that knowledge. You were filled, filled with it. If someone said something to you, you completely forgot it because you're so busy trying to remember these facts. But those that cramming is short-term. And that's, and that's not what Paul's talking about. That's, that's not being filled with the knowledge of his will. It's not just, I'm going to get as much Bible facts in my head as possible. And, and he makes that clear as he continues in verse nine, what it means to be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, to be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The, the, these, these two terms, wisdom and, our, and understanding, are added to knowledge to bring out the, the practical nature of knowledge. See, knowledge is meant to be acted upon and what God has revealed, we do need wisdom and understanding in applying. And it's spiritual, so we go to God for that. Wisdom and understanding are, 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 are two closely related words. We see them many times together, these same Greek words in, 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 the old, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. One great example is Solomon's prayer in 2 Chronicles 1.10. Give me now wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people. For who can rule this great people of yours? He's saying, give me wisdom and understanding. God, help me to do a good job at this. Or Proverbs 2.2, Solomon says to his son, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. See, God had given them God's law, but now the, the book of Proverbs is all about wisdom and understanding, wisely applying the commands that God has given. One commentator writes that, 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 that the combination of wisdom and understanding suggests the ability to discern the truth and to make good decisions based on that truth. It's learning to, li to live in God's world, God's way, with skill and insight. It's how to implement God's will from the big picture, from the story of redemption and our part that we play in that, to the individual instructions about being thankful. It's trying to make the most of the opportunity he's given you to obey, to capitalize on your talents, on the person you are to serve God as king. That's what it means to have this, this spiritual wisdom and understanding. And here we see in Colossians 1, 9, and 10, God's work here. Paul prays. 
We have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. And that filled is passive. This is the work that God does. He fills us with the knowledge of his will. He's made it clear in his word, but then he dominates us through his spirit with his word as we go to it. And then it's spiritual wisdom and understanding. It's wisdom and understanding that comes from God's spirit. We go to him and say, Lord, help me do this. And God has given the the instructions. And now we go to him and say, Lord, give me wisdom how you want me to apply your word this day. This is how we should be praying for one another. This should be the focus of our intercessory prayers, praying that one another would be filled with the knowledge of his will, will be dominated by God's word in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That we would be in one another's, that, that we would have one another in our minds and pray that, 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 Lord, I pray for this brother, I pray for this sister, that they would know your revealed will, that your word would saturate their mind and that they would have wisdom stewarding their, their, their time and their money and their spiritual gifts and their family to, to wisely and, and with insight obey what you've made clear. That is what the focus of our prayers should be. So we, there needs to be a heart behind our prayers. It needs to be a thankful, hopeful, convinced, and, and, and concerned heart. We know what the focus of our prayers should be. It should all center around God's revealed will in his word, transforming our lives. But there's a purpose. And that's our third point. The third aspect of Paul's prayer is this, the purpose of Paul's intercessory prayer. There's a purpose. And we see that purpose as we move on to Colossians 1.10. There's a so that. So that, and this is why I'm praying this for you. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. Work, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in, in all respects. And that's why Paul prays that they would be filled with a knowledge of his will. This is what he wants to see this prayer accomplish in their lives. This is his motivation. This is the engine that drives Paul's prayer. It's really about the glory of Christ. It's about the worthiness of Christ being shown. Being filled with God's will should lead us to fulfilling God's will, to living worthy of Jesus Christ. To walk is an often used, used Old Testament figure of speech. It's a metaphor for our lifestyle, the path that we consistently choose. It's the pattern of our lives. Now, the, 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 the NIV version says that you may live a life, and that catches the meaning really well, but it, it misses out on the metaphor, that you may live a life, that you may walk. And uh, Moses uses that metaphor in Deuteronomy 11.22. If you are careful to keep all this commandment, which I am commanding you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, for his will to be your path, for his will, for his ways to be the road that you drive on, the path that you walk on. It's a metaphor that Paul often used about the conduct of our lives. We see this in Romans 6, 4, and I've just got a couple verses here. Romans 6, 4, he says, Therefore, we have been buried with Jesus through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so that as God raised Christ 
to newness of life, we too might walk in newness of life. We are to walk our paths, our days, the progress of our life should be in newness of life. He uses this metaphor in Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We walk in the good works, which God reveals in his word, so that we would walk in them. Ephesians 5 verse 2, he says, walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us who pair for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. We are to walk in love. We're to walk in love. We're to walk in the good works God, God prepared for us. We're to walk in newness of life. And we are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, worthy of, of the Lord. Now, the, the, the history of this word worthy is 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 a is fascinating and i'm gonna uh quote from a lexicon the the the, the adjective is, is related the adjective worthy is related to words for weighing and denotes that which brings up the other end of the scales so when the scale is balanced it is worthy so if you've got a pound and you're pouring out flour when you've got 16 ounces of flour and the scale balances it is it's worthy it's 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 one pound in the narrower sense of the word, the, the lexicon continues, it means equivalent, worthy, or, 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 or appropriate. In a broader sense, it indicates the relationship of two quantities. So whether a pound weight and 16 ounces of flour. In 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul uses the word, the labor is worthy of his wages. We pay someone what they are worth. Their salary should match up to the work that they put in. Yeah, we, we know that in the, in, in the world that doesn't always happen. In Romans 8, ver, verse 18, he uses the word too to show that something's not worthy. And this is fascinating. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to com be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We have future glory, and that future glory is weighing down the scale. There, 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 there's nothing underneath it. The scale's broken with it and our current sufferings, it's just not going to match up. We've got so much to look forward to. So that's an example of something that's not worthy. We use the phrase that, that someone is worth their weight in gold. Now, when we talk about being worthy of the Lord, I know some of us can start feeling un, 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 uncomfortable. And in a sense, you're right to because we can never be worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a right, a, a, a right humility to it. And just so you know, script, script, Scripture talks about this. In Matthew 8, verse 8, But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will, will be healed. He got it. He said, Jesus, you are so amazing. I'm not even worthy for you to come into my home. So he understood his unworthiness. In Luke 15, ver, ver, verse, verse 21, in the parable of the prodigal son, the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I'm not even worthy about your, of having your name, Dad. And there's that right humility of understanding. We're not worthy of being forgiven. We're not worthy of God's grace to us. We're not even worthy of being servants. At the end of the day, we are just unworthy servants. So we are not trying to match up. We are not trying to match up to Jesus Christ on God's judgment scales. 
It's not like if we can add enough good works to our side and say, okay, well, we've got Jesus over there. Well, now we're going to try to be worthy. So I'm going to do some more good works so that I can kind of balance out and, 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 and make myself worthy of Jesus's sacrifice. Any believer, if you've come to saving faith, you know that that is not how one is made right with God. We are justified. We are declared righteous. We are made righteous by God. This is something that God legally does to us. He declares us righteous. And yet, what Paul's getting at here is, is, is our heart's response to who Jesus Christ is. It's, it's living appropriately to this great grace, living in a way that matches up, living in a way that doesn't dishonor the gift of Jesus Christ. And Paul you often uses this language of, of living worthy. In Ephesians 4.1, he says, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. It's not, he's not saying earn that calling. No, he says live worthy, live in an appropriate way, match up to that call, to that calling. Philippians 1 verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. To live worthy of calling, worthy of the gospel, 1 Thessalonians 2.12, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. We are always humbled to realize I can never be worthy of God, and yet we're commanded to live worthy. Now, in, in, in context here in verse 10, when he says, so walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, that Lord in, in, in the book of Colossians is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is good for us to remember who Jesus Christ is. To live worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ is to live worthy of the person of Jesus Christ. And, and you think about him and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You think about who Jesus is, that he is the incarnate word, that he is the one who loved us and gave himself for us, that he is the good shepherd, that he is the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end, that he is the one who has the keys of death and Hades, that he is the one who is dead, but who is alive. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the way, the truth and the life. He is the bread of life. That is who Jesus is and what he's done, the sacrifice for our sins that he's been, how he was beloved by the Father, how he's perfectly pleasing to the Father, that he is resurrected right now, that he is interceding for us, that he is acting as our great high priest, that he is bringing to us mercy and grace. To, to think of all Jesus is and all that he's done, the Jesus who, who touched lepers, the, the, the Jesus who had compassion on the rich young ruler who turned away from him, the Jesus who wept over the city that was about to destroy him. How do we live worthy of this Jesus? By, by, by being our, having our mind filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's, that's going to, the purpose of that is that we would live worthy. How can you walk worthy? By maximizing upon the gift of Christ. Now, let me ask you as, as, as an illustration, how do you live worthy of a scholarship that is given to you? If someone says, I want to pay your way through school, how do you live worthy of that? Well, you know what that's like. You, you, you try to be as studious as possible. You, you, you want to say, well, I could never pay that back, but I'm going to do the best that I can. How do you live worthy of a, a, a fireman or a, a 
a police officer who gives their life in the line of in the line of duty for your life? How would you live worthy of that sacrifice for you? Well, of course, we have to guess what that person would like, but you would want to somehow make them proud. You 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 would you would want to be a kind person, someone who would be generous and someone who would who would take care of their body, someone who would serve others, someone who'd be a good steward of their life. We, we instinctively know that. Well, then how do we live worthy of Jesus Christ? One commentator writes, a way that's consistent with their status of saints. See, we don't have to guess really how to live worthy of Jesus Christ. He tells us in Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20, he tells us how to live worthy. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. That's how we are to live worthy to do what Jesus has commanded, and to follow the will that he's given us. That's what it is like to, 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 to live worthy. It's to embrace his will for us, to love his commands for us, to devote our lives to obedience, to desire to be fully pleasing to him. And that is what Paul does with his prayer here. The purpose of this prayer that they have the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding is that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord at the end of, in the middle of verse 10, to be pleasing to him in all respects, to please him in all respects. That's, that's, that's He furthers explaining what it means to live worthy, to please Jesus in all respects fully pleasing. It's the pursuit of, of, of bringing favor to the Lord, of pleasing him. Now that could be used in, in a negative way of groveling before him, trying to placate him. Oh, I've got to please him or else he's going to smash me. But that's not what grace does to someone's heart. When you know that he's a good master, you take the talents he's entrusted to you. And it's like, he's coming back. I want to bring him more talents. I want to invest what he's given me. I want to fulfill the will he's given me. I want to embrace that will that's dominating my mind. And I want to, to, to bring as many talents back to him. I want to show as much obedience to him as possible. It's, I want to bring Jesus satisfaction. I want him to approve of my conduct. I want him to smile at the way that I'm walking. And we know we don't do this perfectly. It's the kind of pleasure that, that, that a father has watching his child learning to walk, to take their first steps, learning to ride their bike, or, 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 or when their teenager is running that race and crosses the finish line. See, they, they're, they're seeing him, him grow and cultivate. We want to be bringing Jesus Christ pleasure in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, it says, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Now, Paul says, in all respects, without limitations, in all respects, fully pleasing to him, to be, to be robustly pleasing, to be thoroughly pleasing, to have no room in the, 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 the house of our lives that has on it keep out signs whether our budget, whether our time, whether our relationships. There, there, there's no room in our house where, where we just have been shoving things underneath via bed, trying to hide stuff. It's complete submission in, in, in joy, knowing that my Savior loves me and gave himself for me. I want to be pleasing to him fully. 
I want to have the knowledge of God's will to saturate my life so that I can please him increasingly more and more. This pleasing of God is impossible without new life in Christ. It's, it's impossible without God's spirit. In Romans 8, verses 8 and 9, it says that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. For some of you, pleasing God just sounds tedious. He sounds like a tyrant to you. He sounds like he's meddling, he's meddling in your life. That's evidence that you don't know Jesus Christ because Jesus is a good master. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. His will is a good will. That's what the gospel of God's grace does to us. In Romans 8, verse 8, I just read, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Romans 8, verse 9, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of Christ dwells in you. If God's spirit is in you, you have the ability in Christ to do the will of God. You love his will. You are eager to, 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 to see what his word says, to have his will dominate you. And this is why we can pray for hope for our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is why we can, we can pray with, 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 with thankfulness. This is why we can pray convinced because we know what God's will is for them. We know the kind of that God answers this kind of prayer because this is God's will for the saints to be fully pleasing to him. Like this prayer is one that is guaranteed that God is going to answer for his people. It doesn't, it's not always on our time frame, but this is what God's people do. They have his spirit in them. They love pleasing. They don't do it perfectly. They don't do it always consistently, but this is the pattern of those who have God's spirit in them. God's spirit in them delights to do God's will. The spirit is the spirit of Christ. God's Christ has given us the spirit so that we would be empowered for obedience. Jesus is the vine. We are the branches. Apart from him, we could do nothing. But in him, we can do this, this, this God-pleasing, delighting in his will work. Is that you? Do you have God's spirit in you? If you don't have God's spirit in you, please reach out to someone, either someone there in your home, or, 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 or shoot me an email, give me a phone call. Maybe you're realizing something new about yourself that God's will has always been tedious to you, that you haven't loved it, you haven't delighted in it. God's word has the answers for you. You need to be linked to God through faith to his son. He's, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. But by believing in Jesus Christ, you can have new life in Christ. You can become this person who is fully pleasing to him. So is this your purpose in living? Is your purpose in living what the purpose of Paul's prayer is? That you'd be bearing fruit. Oh, I'm sorry, in verse 10. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing him in all respects. Oh, I want to live worthy of this great grace given to me. I want to please him in every way. Is this your purpose in praying for others? Is this your passion? That, 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 that God's greatness would be put on display, that Jesus's greatness would be on display as people are living, as our brothers and sisters are living worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you motivated by your Savior's pleasure? Are you excited to think about Jesus smiling as your brothers and sisters in Christ are, 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 are fulfilling his will? What a sweet motive to, to prayer, to see Christ's glory on display in our lives. We've seen three aspects here of Paul's intercessory prayer. We've seen the heart of his prayer. 
We've seen the focus of his prayer, that, that we'd be dominated by God's will. And we've seen the purpose, that Christ's glory would be seen, that, that we would live in a manner worthy of Christ, fully pleasing to him. As we finish now, I trust that you have been motivated to use this time in lockdown to cultivate this kind of prayer life. When you come out of your house, when, when we kind of come out of our dark houses and we see, oh, it's summer and it's, it's really hot out here and the sun is shining. Hopefully it's before summer. But will you come out someone who has grown in their intercessory prayer for one another? Or will you have lockdown regrets? Will you come out saying, you, you know, I, I really haven't thought about the saints very much. I really haven't been, been laboring for my fellow care group members. I really haven't embraced Cornerstone Bible Church. See, Paul in prison, he knew what lockdown was for. It is for Jesus's worthiness to be displayed in our lives as we are dominated by his knowledge. Let's pray. Father, I thank you uh, for your word. I thank you for this example in Paul's prayer. He's not, he doesn't specifically say that he's instructing them how to pray, although that's implied. He is teaching us how to pray, but he's also motivated by, by these things being in their lives. And so we get this little insight in, 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 into how you wanted Paul to pray so that we can pray the same way, so that we could have our lives dominated by your, your will, so that we could love pleasing you. I pray, Father, that through your word, that many saints, Lord, that my brothers and sisters listening this morning, that their prayers would be transformed, that they would be refreshed, that they'd be rejuvenated, that some of them would be more devoted to prayer. Lord, that the saints of Cornerstone Bible Stone in this upcoming week would have more prayers prayed for them than perhaps ever before as we have more time, many of us, than, than ever before. And so, Lord, may you do a greater work in us than ever before. May we learn how to walk worthy. And indeed, Father, as we look by, 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 by your grace at verses 10 through 14, we're going to see more what it looks like to be fully pleasing to you and help us to have lives that are, 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 are filled with your will. Lord, your big plan but then also uh, your day-to-day -day instructions. We do pray, Father, as well, uh, for those uh, who are either new this morning or who have yet to submit to your will. Lord, I pray that in this they would see your will is a good will and that they are on the wrong side of it and that they would uh, come to you to be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.